chapter 1 and maybe have your place also in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Again tonight we'll be going between these two passages. Uh, This is really the second half of a study that we began on the Lord's Day Pass looking at the qualifications of church elders. We thought about the importance of the office. We thought about what is involved in doing the job of a church elder and in these last two sermons we've been thinking about uh, who must these elders be. And as I said on the Lord's Day these qualifications are not suggestions. They are not things that perhaps it would be nice if the elder had. An elder must have these qualifications. Paul says to both Timothy and Titus, an overseer must be above reproach. And that phrase above reproach in in a sense covers everything else that Paul says in the two list of qualifications. It's it's what you might call a catch-all term. It summarizes everything else. Uh, And so all of these things are required of elders. We're thinking about these qualifications under three broad categories. We thought about the first category on the Lord's Day past. We thought about the man himself, what you might call basic qualifications of elders, who the man is in himself. And tonight we're going to look at two more broad categories of qualifications that church elders must meet. And so the first of those broad categories this evening is the man in his home, the man in his home. And I have to say, as I've, as, as I've been preparing and preaching on these things, uh, this has caused me to reflect on, on, on my own life. I'm painfully aware of my own imperfections in these areas, but trust by God's grace that he will equip all of us called to the office of elder to uh, move forward with his help and with the grace that he provides to live out these qualifications, uh, some of which hit very close to home this evening. But first of all, uh, tonight we think about the man in his home. If any Christian man is married with children, he is already the pastor of a little church. Whether he's, uh, in fact, whether he's a church elder or not, he is, if he's a husband and father, the pastor of a little church. And so there is no better place to find out whether a man is a suitable leader for the church than in his home. Paul says as much in 1 Timothy 3 verse 5, If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? If a man isn't managing the little mini church under his roof, why would we give him authority over the the bigger church under this roof? As we think about the man in his home, three areas in particular to consider. First of all, the church elder, if he is a husband, must be a faithful husband. The church elder, if he is a husband, must be a faithful husband. Elders don't have to be married. Paul himself, as far as we know, was not married. Uh, Other leaders in church history have not been married. But if an elder is married, then these qualifications apply. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, an overseer must be the husband of one wife. Literally in the original it says, a one woman man. A one woman man. Part of the reason Paul probably said that, guided of course by the Holy Spirit in the writing of Scripture, but in Paul's day polygamy was widespread. Men often took multiple sexual partners and depending on what class and society you were in, people wouldn't have blinked, they wouldn't have thought twice about many men doing that. 
And so in the first instance, Paul is making clear to his first readers in that cultural context that whether it's culturally acceptable or not for a man to do that, uh, so long as a man had multiple sexual partners, he could certainly not become an elder. And of course, couldn't credibly claim to be a Christian unless he uh, put that lifestyle behind him. Genesis 2.24, the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two, not the three or the four or whatever, but two shall become one flesh. Now there's not a lot of polygamy in our culture, or at least it's not accepted in the way that it was in Paul's culture, but Paul's words can be applied in other ways for us today. A one-woman man, for example, is a man who does not flirt with or make unwise or unnecessary friendships with other women besides his wife. It's not that a Christian man can't talk to any other woman other than his wife, but he is a brother to those women and speaks to them and treats them as such. There aren't very many instances when a married Christian man should be meeting privately with another woman, just the two of them. Certainly not uh, in a social, private way that other people don't know about in a a routine way. It's a totally different matter, of course, a man talking to a woman in the context of, you know, a group of people together or after a worship service or something like that. But I'm talking about routinely meeting up just the two of them for private socializing. There aren't a lot of instances when a Christian married man should or would want to do that. Even if there was nothing wrong with it, even giving the impression or giving room for gossip or rumor to spread. In this day and age, we also need to consider the man's habits in front of a screen, whether it's the TV screen, the phone, or the computer. A Christian man should have absolutely no problem with his wife seeing his phone messages or his web browsing history. He doesn't flirt, text or chat privately and routinely with another woman. He's not addicted to pornography and has perhaps even taken steps to ensure that he doesn't become addicted to pornography by getting accountability software on his phone or his computer. To put it simply, there is only one woman in this man's life and it is obvious to the rest of us that that is the case and that he is faithful to her. But scripture goes further than simply requiring an elder to show no romantic interest in other women. More positively, he shows a special and dedicated interest in his wife. The word husband means something like cultivator. And so in the same way that a gardener learns what he must do to cause a beautiful flower to flourish or or a tree to produce its fruit, Husbands are to care for their wives with the goal of seeing them grow stronger in their faith, flourish in their faith, use their God-given gifts and produce spiritual fruit. And so a question to ask of men in church leadership is, are our wives flourishing? Are, Are we husbanding well? Now this doesn't mean, of course, that wives or husbands are are never struggling that in a Christian marriage, everything's just always fine and blissful and, and easy. Anyone who's been married for more than a week or two knows that that's not the case. Uh, we're busy. We get tired. Sometimes we become physically unwell. Children go through particularly demanding phases, demanding a lot of our time and energy. energy. 
physical ill health comes in, mental ill health might come in. And none of that is the the fault necessarily of, of a neglectful husband or wife. But in the midst of all of that busyness of life, men, do we continue to pray with and for our wives? Do we help them in practical ways? Do we give them space when they need it? Encouragement when they need it? The ministry of our presence when they need it? A man who loves his wife like that and whose uh, who's wife uh, loves and respects him and who is flourishing in her own faith, That is a man who very well may be a wonderful pastor for the church. So the church elder, if he is a husband, must be a faithful husband. But secondly, under this broad category of the man at home, the church elder, if he is a father, must be a godly father. The church elder, if he is a father, must be a godly father. 1 Timothy 3 verse 4 He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Titus 1 verse 6 goes further. If his children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery. Now the word there for faithful in Titus 1 6 is translated in some some translations have believers. Depending on what edition of the ESV you have, it could be believers. Or if you have a different translation, maybe it's believers as well. It could be either word, but I think given what Paul is talking about here and given what he says to Timothy, maybe faithful is a more helpful translation. No father can guarantee the salvation of our children. And all of us who are fathers or grandfathers or even uncles and aunts, we're we're painfully aware of that. And Paul is not suggesting that the response, the, the burden of Uh, That somehow fathers can guarantee salvation for their children. But what he's talking about here are children who are still under the influence and authority of their parents. Children who would be expected to listen to and believe the words of and obey their father and indeed their mother. Children tend to believe what their parents tell them. Even if they don't fully understand it. I was to tell my daughter that the moon is made of cheese, she would believe it and she'd probably go around telling everyone because cheese is one of her words. So she would probably be able to go around telling everyone that. They tend to just believe what we tell them. So when we tell them about God and human beings and sin and Christ and heaven and hell, the vast majority of little children will believe that at least on some level and submit to that, even if they have questions about it even if they need a fuller understanding of those things as they get older. And so parents, we have the the primary and greatest influence over our children in all normal circumstances. I know that that exceptions apply, but in all normal circumstances, parents have the primary and greatest influence over our children. The church doesn't exist simply for parents to wash their hands of their responsibility and to ship the kids out the door and get them taught about God by someone else. That teaching needs to be in the home, primarily in the form of family worship, but also simply in the the conversations and in the priorities, in the atmosphere, in the examples that parents set. Great emphasis is often placed these days on what churches provide for children 
and young people. And oftentimes parents, families will make their decision about where they go to church based on how much is going on for young people. And of course there is a place for specific ministry to children in churches. But at times that focus on, on, on children's ministry in churches comes at the expense of parents embracing their own responsibilities. There's nothing wrong with Sunday school, for example. Nothing at all wrong with Sunday school. Uh, but most Christians don't consider that for the first 1,800 years or more of the church's existence, there was no such thing as Sunday school. When it first began, it was actually intended as an evangelistic ministry for children from outside the church. And yet for 1,800 years, the church survived. Why? Because as well as public Lord's Day worship, there was worship in the home. Because as one preacher has said, God in his sovereignty uses the influence of parents to a far greater extent than any other influence in all normal circumstances. And so parents, and if I may say fathers in particular, there is a responsibility upon us. Now there must also be an atmosphere of grace in our homes, an atmosphere of grace. This isn't to say that children aren't disciplined for bad behavior, but perhaps as fathers in particular, we need to learn how to get obedience from our children without always becoming threatening or stern or quick to punish. As well as daily family worship, which is crucial, we need to bring God and his word into the, the normal, ordinary experiences of our children's lives. As they interact with their siblings, as we ask them about their day at school, as we, as, as we discover what might be worrying them. Those are, those are sometimes moments to, to pray with them and for them, to, to teach them about the grace and love and sovereignty of God. And so the qualification here is that generally speaking, a man's children are receiving and responding to a good example and good teaching from their father. Are they generally submissive and obedient? Does family worship happen? Even if it can be a struggle at times with very young children who are tired or distracted or acting out, does it happen regardless of how anybody in the house is feeling? If a man is to lead in the church, he must first be leading in his home, in that mini church that God has given to him. So the church elder, if he is a husband, must be a faithful husband. If he is a father, he must be a godly father. And the last, uh, the last thing to say under this point is that the church elder's home must be an open home. The church elder's home must be an open home. 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, the key word is hospitable. Hospitable. The literal meaning of the word hospitable is loving the stranger. Uh, inviting in people who, whom we don't know very well or whom we want to know better uh, or visitors to the church or a non-Christian neighbour, whoever it may be. Uh, and I, I've, I've touched on this subject a few times over the last few months. Uh, that's not by coincidence. I believe this is very important, especially as we come out of the, uh, the pandemic. Uh, but there's perhaps no better way to get to know someone than to chat to them over a meal. That's why first dates frequently take the form of 
a dinner out somewhere. Hospitality doesn't have to always be the big Lord's Day dinner with all the trimmings. Might be a cup of tea in your home or in a cafe or somewhere else on a, on a Wednesday afternoon. Maybe we invite someone in for, for a takeaway on a Saturday night or to watch a Six Nations match over some food and, and we, we build a relationship with them. Now, of course, not every church member is able to do this. Indeed, it's worth remembering that some church elders are, are in need of being offered hospitality far more than they are able to offer it themselves. And there are times in our lives when we, we should humbly accept hospitality. Some church members just aren't able for, for legitimate reasons, health, old age, living situation, whatever it may be. But friends, the elder, the elder must be hospitable. It's a requirement in God's word. Indeed, it's not going too far to say that if an elder or a potential elder is not able or not willing to be hospitable, he should not be an elder. Why is this so important? Well, first of all, because as we've just considered, church members should know that the man leading, the men leading in their church are also leading in their own homes. That who he is in public is who he is in private or, or at least in the setting of his own home. And it's not that we come around each other's houses with clipboards, <laughs> but an open home is an opportunity to learn from the lives and the lifestyle of our elders. From how he leads in his home, from, from just how he interacts in his home and, and how he welcomes others into his home. It's a discipling opportunity, if you like. But an elder should also have an open home so that he can be an, an evangelist in his home. Hospitality is an opportunity to show non-Christian friends, colleagues, neighbours what everyday Christian living looks like. What it looks like for us to hold family worship at the dinner table. And I've perhaps mentioned before that one of the only people I can think of who began attending church regularly in in our last congregation was they didn't come because of a leaflet drop or because of door to door or special meetings, all of which we did at various times, but because they were invited into someone's home for dinner. And I've since heard of people coming through the Holiday Bible Club or through parents and toddlers, all those sorts of things can have their place, but so does hospitality. In fact, I would go so far as to say that hospitality is more important than many of those more formal, organized activities. 1 Peter 4 verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. One of my fellow pastors, known to you here in Jamore, the Reverend Stephen Steele, when he was preaching on this, he says, next to the worship of God, <coughs> there is probably nothing more important to the health of a church than hospitality. If there's not a culture of hospitality, it's hard to see how that church will thrive. Carl Truman, uh, who Stephen quoted speaking on this uh, subject, he said, hospitality can be more dramatic in shaping one's view of church and Christianity than many a sermon. Not that the ministry of the word is not the most important thing, it is, but he says, hospitality is powerful too. It shows the love of Christ and burns good memories of those into the, uh, good, burns good memories into the minds of those who receive it. 
And in that, as in everything else, friends, elders in particular are to take the lead. The man, the man in his home should have an open home to disciple fellow Christians, to welcome in non-Christians, to be an evangelist. So that's the man in his home. We thought about the man himself this past Lord's Day. We thought about the man in his home. And the third and final category of qualifications is the man in his community. The man in his community. How he relates to other people beyond his own family, both in his church and beyond. Three things to think about under this section. Uh, First of all, he must be a peaceable man. He must be a peaceable man. 1 Timothy 3 verse 3, (coughs) Titus 1 verse 7, Paul says, Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. A church elder should not be a fighter. There are far too many situations in church life in which a quick-tempered or impatient man could do serious damage if he were an elder. The monthly or maybe every five or six weeks of a session meeting, presbytery meetings, synod meetings, these are, are necessary, important times when important matters are dealt with in church life some of which can be delicate and difficult. And all sorts of opinions will be formed on all sorts of subjects and sometimes sincere and godly men will see things differently. If an elder is easily frustrated, easily annoyed when things don't go his way, it's a recipe for disaster. Elders must not be quick-tempered or sharp-tongued men who make mountains out of molehills or or fly off the handle easily. In fact, it's the complete opposite. Elders need to find ways not to start conflicts, but to end conflicts, which can be a lot harder and take a lot more time and wisdom and energy. Elders sometimes need to be prepared to submit to their fellow elders when their opinion is the minority opinion in session. They need to find ways of making peace in the church as far as is possible without being unfaithful to Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 3, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says in verse 11 that the Lord Jesus has provided elders and shepherds specifically for promoting the unity of the church. And so the elder must not be quarrelsome but peaceable, able to reconcile, able to compromise where compromise is needed, not on points of doctrine, of course, but on points of decision-making or or approach. He must be peaceable. Secondly, the man in his church or his community, he must be respected. He must be respected and respectable inside and outside the church. He must be respectable inside and outside the church. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, the man must be respectable. The word means uh, that this man conducts himself, the way he conducts himself is is worthy of imitation. Uh, Similarly, Paul says in verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Well thought of by outsiders. Literally the language there is he is a beautiful witness. Uh, A beautiful witness. Uh, A church elder is in a public office. That is an office that is going to be known about in the wider community. 
Now, realistically, our elders, particularly in, in our little church, we're, we're hardly going to be making the front page of the Banbridge and Jamore Leader week in and week out. Uh, but even so, elders are known beyond the church. And so a man who has a reputation as a dodgy dealer in business or who has a patchy record in terms of integrity in his community, that man has disqualified himself. When the ordination service of new elders is announced, it should be no surprise to anyone, even outside the church, that a particular man or men are becoming elders. Instead, the reaction should be, yeah, not surprised by that really. Um, I know what sort of man that is. I know how committed he is to his church. Good man. And whether they are believers or not, people should see that here is a man who lives out his Christian life. It's not just about an hour or two at the beginning of the week for this man. It's, it's a life, a lifestyle of integrity and humility and respectability. Just notice the strong language Paul uses here to underline the importance of a man's track record in public life. If you look at 1 Timothy 3 verse 7. He says, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. In other words, if he doesn't hold the respect of the outside world, the outside world could pose temptations and problems for this man. This man could end up bringing baggage onto the doorstep of the church because of whatever it is that he's done outside the church. Generally speaking, He should be a man respected and well thought of even by people outside the church. So he must be peaceable. He must be respectable. And the last thing to say about the man in his church or wider community is he must be able to teach. He must be able to teach. You could easily miss this at first. Uh, 1 Timothy 3 verse 2. The last qualification in that verse Able to teach. Paul goes into more detail in Titus chapter 1 verse 9. He says, The elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So here is a man who knows his Bible well enough to know when the Bible is being distorted, or being misrepresented, or when false teaching is doing the rounds. As I said in previous weeks, an elder is a shepherd. Pastor means shepherd. And a shepherd's most important job is to feed the sheep. He must know God's word. He must be able to explain it, defend it, promote it, and teach it to those for their teach it to others for their benefit and blessing. I mentioned on the Lord's Day past that almost everything on this list of qualifications. Uh, they are things that all Christians really can be striving for, most of them. Not violent, not a drunkard, respectable, self-controlled, uh, ordering your home well. Those are things that almost all of us can and should be doing. But whilst not all Christians have to be able to teach God's word, elders must be able to teach God's word. It's possible that a man could meet every other qualification, but if he falls short of this one, he cannot be an elder. 
Now we need to be clear immediately that able to teach is not the same as able to preach. Some of the finest church elders I know have never preached a sermon in their lives, probably never will. But this qualification means that the elder has some ability to explain God's word to other people. Whether that's over a cup of coffee, a one-to-one Bible study with a friend, offering a piece of biblical advice, teaching a Sunday school class or a Bible class for for older folks, offering an answer at Christianity Explored, all sorts of ways a man can teach. One of the best resources to help elders to get more familiar with the crucial truths of God's word that they need to be able to teach to others is to read or study the Westminster Confession of Faith. In fact, when an elder is ordained in our denomination, he signs a document to confirm that he's in agreement with the confession. Uh, And so he needs to have read it before he gets to that point. Uh, And it's a a great resource to to, to, to help a man to teach others God's word. And this teaching doesn't have to be formal. Uh, Think of Jesus' teaching methods. He took his disciples fishing. Uh, He taught while they rowed a boat or walked on a beach. Teaching might happen on a car journey. Might happen at a hospital bedside as as a few verses of God's word are read and and prayed over. As I say, it might be one-to-one or it might be a larger group. There are many, many ways to be a teacher of God's word. But if a man is not able in any regard to teach, he cannot be an elder. And I want to challenge the men of our congregation, regardless of whether you become an elder in the near future or not. Men, be men of the word. Be men of the word. If this church is to remain healthy and strong for the generations to come, it needs men who can explain and defend the truth. It needs men who will care for and be examples both to the little flock under their own roof, if they have one, and to the larger flock of this congregation. And if we are increasingly a church with men like that, then whether you become an elder or not, you will certainly be a blessing to your own family and to your church family. But elders in particular must be men who know and love God's word And who can teach God's word to others. So the man himself. The man in his home. And the man in his church. And his community. He must be peaceable. He must be respectable. And he must be able to teach the word of God. Well we come to the end of our short series on biblical eldership. We've thought about why this is important. We've thought about what elders do. We've thought about who they must be. And I would imagine that some of you are thinking what I have been thinking as I study and preach through this series. The words of Paul come to mind, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? The answer is not a single one of us. You won't find any perfect husbands, fathers, hospitality providers or Bible teachers in this church or anywhere else. There is only one shepherd who is sufficiently qualified, sufficiently righteous and good. That is our chief shepherd, our saviour, our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul asked, who is sufficient? (coughs) 
The answer is none of us. But Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. And so in the matter of church leadership, as in everything else, Jesus is the perfect substitute saviour. He is the head of the church. He is the chief shepherd. And he will provide all that we need. And the very last thing I want to say in this series, I want to say to the men, some of whom I hope and pray will soon be elected to be elders, or perhaps some of you in the near future will be elected as deacons, because regardless of what happens in our elders' election, we could do with more deacons as well. And you may, you may very well be qualified in the ways that we've been, we've been considering, and that qualification may well be confirmed by the election that takes place, but you might be left wondering if you really have the time, if you really should make this commitment Is it not going to be a great sacrifice of energy? Maybe a sacrifice of some free time or of work time or of family time? Well, I can tell you right now, yes. Sometimes, oftentimes it will be. But it is a sacrifice for a saviour who has sacrificed so much more for all of us. And it's a sacrifice out of love for the church of Jesus Christ, for the good of the people for whom Christ has bled and died. And so it is a sacrifice worth making. And be assured, those whom God calls, he also equips that we might shepherd his flock for his glory. Amen.